Hello and welcome to episode two of Jungian Ever After, a podcast about fairy tales through the lens of Jungian analysis. I am your host, Raisa, and joining me as always is my co-host and Jungian analyst, Dr. Adina Davidson. Uh, today, we're going to be covering Cinderella and the first two themes that play a major role in the story. Now, due to the length of the story itself, as well as the accompanying analysis, we're breaking this into two episodes. So the first is going to be our sort of pre-story discussion where we read the story itself and talk about the importance of grief within the narrative. And the next episode, we'll summarize the story as a refresher before tackling the second major theme, which is envy. But first, how are you doing, Adina? I'm all right. I'm a little nervous about all of this, but excited to dive into Cinderella, which is just such a rich and complicated fairy tale that I think says so much about human psyche and what we experience. Yeah, and, and Cinderella is a story that I think everyone knows as kind of this rags-to-riches tale. I'm curious, going into reading this Grimm's fairy tale, what sort of things did you already know about the story, a particular version, or anything like that? So... I, I, when you and I started this process, I had already done some studying during training of Cinderella. And so I kind of already went into it with that Jungian lens, right? That, that this isn't a tale, for me, this isn't so much a tale of how people go from rags to riches but from how, what happens to people around certain emotional states. Um, and the two big ones that I've looked at are the transformative power of genuinely felt grief and the destructive power of envy. So one emotion really helps us grow and individuate. And the other emotion, if we stay stuck in it, can actually take us in the opposite direction. We become less than who we are. Well, I'm excited to dive into those details. But first, I like to get into a little bit of the history of these stories and some of the pop culture references. The history of Cinderella is very interesting. There's actually a lot of different versions of the story, depending on how loose you want to be with what defines it as a Cinderella story. The oldest known oral version is an ancient Greek story of Rhodopis, which involves a sandal. So kind of oddly enough, the footwear thing is what really transcends this king tracks down this sandal and marries the woman. And then there's another version, Yeshan in year 860 in China, which involves a mother who passes away and is reincarnated as a fish, as sort of Cinderella is still that grief element and sort of processing and worship of her mother and the evil step family 
realizes the mother is reincarnated as a fish and kills it, but the bones become magical. But the version that I think we're all most familiar with comes from Perrault, uh, not Grimm. So that is the French version from 1697. And that is where we get the pumpkin carriage and the fairy godmother and the glass slippers. I think people may be surprised that glass slippers are not present in the Grimm version. But Disney is definitely derived from Perrault. And then I think from there, it's unclear whether they derive from Perrault or, or Disney. It's sort of a copying the copying. Many people, I'm sure, are familiar with the Brandy musical version of Cinderella from Rodgers and Hammerstein, which is a very fun. And then there's been fantasy takes as well. A book that got a movie called Ella Enchanted, which is very loosely based on the Cinderella story, but with sort of a strong female lead interpretation going on sort of this magical journey to, to save the prince from assassination. So one thing that really strikes me as you're going through the history, first of all, is this common theme of the shoe. What's archetypal about shoes? And what I think is that shoes are one of the earliest and most powerful things that protect vulnerable parts of ourselves. And one of the ways that you can look at Cinderella is as a story of defenselessness that somehow becomes able to protect itself. So Cinderella is so vulnerable and so defenseless. And over time, over time, as you go through the story, she becomes surrounded by protectors. And if you think of that as an internal process, she is able to use her own psyche's resources to protect herself over time. And so maybe that's why we see this continued presence of shoes, because they are symbolic of our ability to protect our most vulnerable parts of ourselves. The other thing that strikes me is, in a way, I'm not surprised that it's the Perot version that has stuck in popular imagination over Grimm, because it's so visually beautiful. The images are so lovely. They're really, in the Grimm story, and I know you're about to tell it in a minute, in the Grimm story, the images are not lovely, right? But in Perot, we have this, this pumpkin carriage, this, these beautiful dresses, and glass slippers. Who doesn't want glass slippers? I mean, not in reality. I'm sure they'd be horrible to walk in. But they're just, <laughs> but again, visual imagery is just so beautiful. And I wonder if that's sort of a cultural difference of German versus French, or perhaps a time period difference of harder times versus more fantastic times in terms of storytelling. Right, right. Now that's a really interesting, like there's not a lot of luxury in Grimm. No. And there's a lot of luxury in Perot. And again, German versus French or just more resources when Perot was writing it. I think that's a really interesting question. Definitely. I don't think either of us are going to have an answer to that. But. <laughs> no, but let's hear it now. We'll dive into the reading of Grimm's Cinderella. Cinderella from Household Tales by Brothers Grimm. 
the wife of a rich man fell sick, and as she felt that her end was drawing near, she called her only daughter to her bedside and said, Dear child, please be good and pious, and then the good God will always protect thee, and I will look down on thee from heaven and be near thee. Thereupon she closed her eyes and departed. Every day the maiden went out to her mother's grave and wept, and she remained pious and good. When winter came, the snow spread a white sheet over the grave, and when the spring sun had drawn it off again, the man had taken another wife. The woman had brought two daughters into the house with her, who were beautiful and fair of face, but vile and black of heart. Now began a bad time for the poor stepchild. Is the stupid goose to sit in the parlor with us? said they. He who wants to eat bread must earn it. Out with the kitchen wench. They took her pretty clothes away from her, put an old gray bedgown on her, and gave her wooden shoes. Just look at the proud princess, how decked out she is, they cried, and laughed, and led her into the kitchen. There she had to do hard work from morning till night, get up before daybreak, carry water, light fires, cook and wash. Besides this, the sisters did every imaginable injury. They mocked her and emptied her peas and lentils into the ashes so that she was forced to sit and pick them out again. In the evening, when she had worked till she was weary, she had no bed to go to, but had to sleep by the fireside in the ashes. And as on that account she always looked dusty and dirty, they called her Cinderella. It happened that the father was once going to the fair, and he asked his two stepdaughters what he should bring back for them. Beautiful dresses, said one. Pearls and jewels, said the second. And thou, Cinderella, said he, what wilt thou have? Father, break off for me the first branch which knocks against your hat on the way home. So he bought beautiful dresses, pearls and jewels for his two stepdaughters, and on his way home as he was riding through a green thicket, a hazel twig brushed against him and knocked off his hat. Then he broke off the branch and took it with him. When he reached home, he gave his stepdaughters the things which they had wished for, and to Cinderella he gave the branch from the hazel bush. Cinderella thanked him, went to her mother's grave, and planted the branch on it, and wept so much that the tears fell down on it and watered it. And it grew, however, and became a handsome tree. Thrice a day Cinderella went and sat beneath it, and wept and prayed, and a little white bird always came on the tree, and if Cinderella expressed a wish, the bird threw down to her what she had wished for. It happened, however, that the king appointed a festival which was to last three days, and to which all the beautiful young girls in the country were invited, in order that his son might choose for himself a bride. When the two stepsisters heard that they were to appear among the number, they were delighted, called Cinderella, and said, Comb our hair for us, brush our shoes, and fasten our buckles, for we are going to the festival at the king's palace. Cinderella obeyed, but wept, because she too would have liked to go with them to the dance and begged her stepmother to allow her to do so. Thou go, Cinderella, said she. Thou art dusty and dirty, and wouldst go to the festival. Thou hast no clothes and no shoes, and yet wouldst dance. As, however, Cinderella went on asking, the stepmother at last said, 
I'll emptied a dish of lentils into the ashes for thee. If thou hast picked them out again in two hours, thou shalt go with us. The maiden went through the back door into the garden and called, You tame pigeons, you turtle doves, and all you birds beneath the sky, come and help me to pick. The good into the pot, the bad into the crop. Then two white pigeons came in by the kitchen window, and afterwards the turtle doves, and at last all the birds beneath the sky came whirring and crowding in, and alighted amongst the ashes. And the pigeons nodded with their heads and began, pick, 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 and the rest began also, pick, 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 and gathered all the good grains into the dish. Hardly had one hour passed before they had finished, and all flew out again. Then the girl took the dish to her stepmother, and was glad and believed that she would be allowed to go with them to the festival. But the mother said, No, Cinderella, thou hast no clothes, and thou canst not dance. Thou wouldst only be laughed at. And as Cinderella wept at this, the stepmother said, If thou canst pick two dishes of lentils out of the ashes for me in one hour, thou shalt go with us. And she thought to herself, That she most certainly cannot do. When the stepmother had emptied the two dishes of lentils amongst the ashes, the maiden went through the back door into the garden and cried, You tame pigeons, you turtle doves, and all you birds under heaven, come and help me to pick. The good into the pot, the bad into the crop. Then two white pigeons came in by the kitchen window, and afterwards the turtle doves, and at length all the birds beneath the sky came whirring and crowding in, and alighted amongst the ashes. And the doves nodded with their heads and began, pick, 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 pick. And the others also began, pick, 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 pick. And gathered all the good seeds into the dishes, and before half an hour was over, they had already finished and all flew out again. Then the maiden carried the dishes to the stepmother and was delighted, and believed that she might now go with them to the festival. But the stepmother said, All this will not help thee, Thou goest not with us, for thou hast no clothes and canst not dance. We should be ashamed of thee. On this she turned her back on Cinderella and hurried away with her two proud daughters. As no one was now at home, Cinderella went to her mother's grave beneath the hazel tree and cried, Shiver and quiver, little tree, silver and gold throw down over me. Then the bird threw a gold and silver dress down to her and slippers embroidered with silk and silver. She put on the dress with all speed and went to the festival. Her stepsisters and the stepmother, however, did not know her, and thought she must be a foreign princess, for she looked so beautiful in the golden dress. They never once thought of Cinderella, and believed that she was sitting at home in the dirt, picking lentils out of the ashes. The prince went to meet her, took her by the hand, and danced with her. He would dance with no other maiden, and never let loose of her hand. And if anyone else came to invite her, he said, this is my partner. She danced till it was evening, and then she wanted to go home. But the king's son said, I will go with thee and bear thee company, for he wished to see to whom the beautiful maiden belonged. She escaped from him, however, and sprang into the pigeon house. The king's son waited until her father came, and then he told him that the stranger maiden had leapt into the pigeon house. The old man thought, Can it be Cinderella? and they had to bring him an axe and a pickaxe that he might hew the pigeon house to pieces, but no one was inside it. And when they got home, Cinderella lay in her dirty clothes among the ashes, 
and a dim little oil lamp was burning on the mantelpiece, where Cinderella had jumped quickly down from the back of the pigeon house and had run to the little hazel tree. And there she had taken off her beautiful clothes and laid them on the grave. And the bird had taken them away again, and she had placed herself in the kitchen amongst the ashes in her gray gown. Next day, when the festival began afresh, and her parents and the stepsisters had gone once more, Cinderella went to the hazel tree and said, Shiver and quiver, my little tree, silver and gold throw down over me. Then the bird threw down a much more beautiful dress than on the preceding day. And when Cinderella appeared at the festival in this dress, everyone was astonished at her beauty. The king's son had waited until she came and instantly took her by the hand and danced with no one but her. When others came and invited her, he said, She is my partner. When evening came and she wished to leave, and the king's son followed her and wanted to see in which house she went, but she sprang away from him and into the garden behind the house. Therein stood a beautiful tall tree on which hung the most magnificent pears. She clambered so nimbly between the branches like a squirrel that the king's son did not know where she was gone. He waited until her father came and said to him, The stranger maiden has escaped from me, and I believe she has climbed up the pear tree. The father thought, can it be Cinderella? And had an axe brought and cut the tree down. But no one was on it. And when they got into the kitchen, Cinderella lay there amongst the ashes, as usual, for she had jumped down on the other side of the tree, had taken the beautiful dress to the bird on the little hazel tree, and put on her gray gown. On the third day, when the parents and sisters had gone away, Cinderella went once more to her mother's grave and said to the little tree, Shiver and quiver, my little tree, silver and gold throw down over me. And now the bird threw down to her a dress which was more splendid and magnificent than any she had yet had, and the slippers were golden. And when she went to the festival in the dress, no one knew how to speak for astonishment. The king's son danced with only her, and if anyone invited her to dance, he said, She is my partner. When evening came, Cinderella wished to leave and the king's son was anxious to go with her, but she escaped from him so quickly that he could not follow her. The king's son had, however, used a stratagem, and had caused the whole staircase to be smeared with pitch, and there, when she ran down, the maiden's left slipper remained sticking. The king's son picked it up, and it was small and dainty and all golden. Next morning he went with it to the father and said to him, no one shall be my wife but she whose foot this golden slipper fits. Then were the two sisters glad, for they had pretty feet. The eldest went with the shoe into her room and wanted to try it on, and her mother stood by. But she could not get her big toe into it, and the shoe was too small for her. Then her mother gave her a knife and said, Cut the toe off. When thou art queen, thou wilt have no more need to go on foot. The maiden cut the toe off, forced the foot into the shoe, swallowed the pain, and went out to the king's son. Then he took her on his horse as his bride and rode away with her. They were, however, obliged to pass the grave, and there on the hazel tree sat the two pigeons and cried, Turn and peep, turn and peep, there's blood within the shoe. The shoe is too small for her, the true bride waits for you. Then he looked at her foot and saw how the blood was streaming from it. He turned his horse round and took the false bride home again, and said she was not the true one, and that the other sister was to put the shoe on. Then this one went into her chamber and got her toes safely into the shoe, but her heel was too large. 
So her mother gave her a knife and said, Cut a bit off thy heel. When thou art queen, thou wilt have no more need to go on foot. The maiden cut a bit off her heel, forced her foot into the shoe, swallowed the pain, and went out to the king's son. He took her on his horse as his bride and rode away with her. But when they passed by the hazel tree, two little pigeons sat on it and cried, Turn and peep, turn and peep, there's blood within the shoe. The shoe, it is too small for her. The true bride waits for you. He looked down at her foot and saw how the blood was running out of her shoe and how it had stained her white stocking. Then he turned his horse and took the false bride home again. This also is not the right one, said he. Have you no other daughters? No, said the man. There is still a little stunted kitchen wench which my late wife left behind her, but she cannot possibly be the bride. The king's son said he was to send her up to him, but the mother answered, Oh, no, she is much too dirty. She cannot show herself. He absolutely insisted on it, and Cinderella had to be called. She first washed her hands and face clean, and then went and bowed down before the king's son, who gave her the golden shoe. Then she seated herself on a stool, drew her foot out of the heavy wooden shoe, and put it into the slipper, which fitted like a glove. And when she rose up and the king's son looked at her face, he recognized the beautiful maiden who had danced with him, and cried, That is the true bride. The stepmother and two sisters were terrified and became pale with rage. He, however, took Cinderella on his horse and rode away with her. As they passed by the hazel tree, the two white doves cried, Turn and peep, turn and peep. No blood is in the shoe. The shoe is not too small for her. The true bride rides with you. And when they had cried that, the two came flying down and placed themselves on Cinderella's shoulders, one on the right and one on the left, and remained sitting there. When the wedding with the king's son had to be celebrated, the two false sisters came and wanted to get into favor with Cinderella and share her good fortune. When the betrothed couple went to church, the elder was at the right side and the younger at the left, and the pigeons pecked out one eye of each of them. Afterwards, as they came back, the elder was at the left and the younger at the right, and then the pigeons pecked out the other eye of each. And thus, for their wickedness and falsehood, they were punished with blindness as long as they lived. Welcome back, listeners. I hope you enjoyed that reading of Grimm's Cinderella. I'm sure that wasn't quite the story many of you are familiar with. As we were sort of discussing, Grimm has uh, several differences from the Perot version. But one of the big ones is handling of the father. And something you may notice is the father's largely absent from the Perot version. They kind of don't involve him. He's maybe there at the beginning. I think often, if he's portrayed much at all in the movie versions, etc., I think he's supposed to be a, a loving father that's just sort of absent and neglectful in terms of letting the stepfamily abuse Cinderella. But in Grimm, it's a little different. He's kind of involved. Yeah, I, I would even say in, in the Grimm story, he colludes with the stepmother. He has joined the alliance that is persecuting Cinderella, which actually, in a way, makes the story even more horrifying. Right. Oh, absolutely. 
it's one thing to have a loving father who's just so busy at work that he doesn't know what's going on. That allows a child the feeling that there is still a loving parent out there if I could just access them, if I could just get their attention. But if, if that parent has joined the evil stepmother, the abusers, then the child really has nothing. And I think actually that is the psychological intent or result of the way Grimm tells it. For the listener to be confronted with this absolute vulnerability, this child who has no one. It's not the whole part, right? You think that it's not going to be that way at first because he goes to the market and he asks each of his daughters what they want as a gift. And, oh, Cinderella just asks for this branch that she then plants on her mother's grave, grows into a tree. You think, oh, well, they're all asking for a gift. He's treating them equally. But where we really get to this awful behavior is where the prince is coming around and asks, have you no other daughters? And her father says, there's still a little stunted kitchen wench, which my late wife left behind, but she cannot possibly be the bride, as if she's not his daughter at all. And that betrayal, I think particularly for, I guess they don't verify an age here, but people got married younger than probably like 16 or something. I mean, that is really, it'd be heartbreaking at any age, but I think particularly in sort of formative years. Yeah, I agree. And again, I think this taps into that archetypal abandonment that we all experience. So we we are going to deeply connect with Cinderella in this moment because we're going to feel her abandonment in our own abandoned places. And I think that makes the story so powerful. It's part of the reason that it's survived so many centuries. Yeah, and something that I think also makes this particular version powerful is the grief element. That's what this whole episode is sort of about. And that taking the branch home, planting it on her mother's grave, and the sort of magic comes from that tree, the birds on that tree. It's a little vague on, on the specifics, but it's the magic and healing power of grief. Whereas the Perot version by contrast, has this fairy godmother aspect, which has become so iconic, but I think is less beautiful. I mean, the glass slippers and the pumpkin are, are more kind of beautiful elements, but the fairy godmother is fantastical. And while it's fun and everyone recognizes it, it's kind of a shame to lose that grief element. That really... It is Cinderella's grief that grew the helpers. They didn't just appear from nowhere. They appeared out of her capacity to deeply engage in her own loss and express her loss. So, yeah, let's, let's dive in. Cinderella begins with a mother dying and her mother's loving promise to watch over Cinderella even after death. This is really different 
from the abandoning parents of our last tale that we looked at, Rapunzel. This mother clearly loves Cinderella and is only leaving her because she must. She dies. She has no choice. But Cinderella behaves like a child who has had a secure, loving attachment. She's had a parent who genuinely loves her through her early years. And all of the ways that she responds to the worst of her troubles show the result of having had this secure, loving relationship as a young child. And the first result is that Cinderella is genuinely able to grieve her mother. And again, I think this is in stark contrast to Rapunzel, who, when she's sent off with the witch into the stone tower, just kind of calmly goes. There's nothing about her saying, please don't make me go, or crying, or missing her parents. She's just sort of numb. Oh, okay, this is what I'm doing. In contrast, Cinderella goes to her mother's grave every day and weeps. And weeps and weeps and weeps every single day. And then we come to a a bit of a turning point. So this first stage is just Cinderella engulfed in her loss. But then Cinderella's father goes to the fair. And he asks all of the sisters, as you said before, he asks them all, "What, what do you guys want? I'm going to the fair. The stepsisters ask for and get material goods. Cinderella asks for a tree branch. And I think her asking for a tree branch is also really meaningful. Trees are a numinous symbol in every culture. Some of the things they symbolize, and because they're really a symbol, we can't know everything, but some of the things they symbolize are growth, rebirth, right? Because trees appear to die in the winter, but they come back in the spring. The power of life. In some cultures, they are, in many cultures, actually, they're symbolic of the spirit of the world. uh, And they're symbolic of of spiritual transformation. So the fact that she asks for a tree branch right away says, okay, something important and transformative is about to happen. Then she plants the tree branch by her mother's grave. So she plants this symbol of rebirth and life right next to the symbol of death and loss. And she waters it with her tears. It's her tears, it's her grief that build the bridge between the loss and the potential rebirth and new life. And I think if we think about people or maybe even our own selves in moments of grief, that's going to make a lot of sense. As long as we're sort of stuck in that numb, dead, no tears place, dissociated place, there's no growth. And it is once we can remember the person that we've lost and cry and grieve that that something begins to move inside of us and we begin to be able to hold their memory in a way that opens up the possibility for our own growth. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, yeah. 
For me personally, I lost my father when I was 15. And I think it's important to have some kind of ritual or, or some kind of engagement. Container? Yeah. A particular place you can go or something symbolic. Because for the first year, I was almost completely despondent. I pretended, even though I was the youngest, like somehow I had to be the support for my family, which is, of course, absurd. But I didn't cry that entire time. I wasn't able to engage with that grief. But I think as I've gotten older and been more able to accept and kind of recognize the things that I need to process everything. I mean, at this point, it's been over a decade, but I still have in my house a little, you could call it a shrine or something, an, an altar, I, I don't know. It's just of objects that either remind me of my dad or photo of him. It's just an in memoriam type thing. My mom has, it's not an urn, but a container with his ashes. And I think that's kind of always been sort of similar thing for her. And, you know, when you're having a tough day, you talk to the person. It's maybe even kind of like a prayer. So having some kind of ritual, some kind of way of feeling like you can engage with the person you've lost, I think can be quite magical. And sometimes I'll have dreams where I'll have conversations and whether it's a remembered conversation or it's my mind playing out what I think he would have said in terms of giving advice, kind of doesn't matter. It's sort of this way of getting to see him again, which is kind of magical. First of all, I would say that I actually think that when you dream about your dad, it's I would stay open to the possibility that it is actually the way your dad can still talk to you. <laughs> but for Cinderella, at least in the grim tale, her mother doesn't come back to her. So what happens really comes from Cinderella. She plants the tree branch by her mother's grave and waters it with her tears. And magically, as you've said, it grows into a tree. So in that same way that creating that shrine or that altar allows for magical transformation for you, that same process is seen in Cinderella. And because of this branch that she's watered with her tears, which grows into a tree, birds come and live in, that, in the branches of that tree. They're magical birds. And those birds become her helpers. That, in the grim tale, that's where she gets her wishes met. Not a fairy godmother who appears from nowhere, but from birds who come and live in this tree that she has watered with her tears. So I would say, without grief, there are no tears. Without tears, there is no tree. Without a tree, there are no magical help. That's the process that we see in this story. A much more 
powerful chain than just thinking, oh, Disney princess, magical animal helpers. We kind of don't give it any context or, or extra thought in those films. But if we're considering the broader picture, I think this is how we can talk about the real magic that we have in our world. And in ourselves, right? It is our own psychological work that opens up to the magical helpers in psyche. The word magic is a little uncomfortable for me. Okay. But it truly feels that way when we have these experiences. This is help that comes from, in the story, from overlooked small creatures, birds. In our own lives, it comes from these small, seemingly insignificant parts of our psyche that feel like they magically are doing tasks that our conscious selves are simply incapable of. We will come across something. I mean, for me, it often happens with if I'm writing. And I'm like, I have absolutely no ideas here. Just none. I have nothing to say about this topic. And if I can just sit and let my conscious ego move to the side a little bit, they're going to be these little inklings that are going to come from I don't know where, and there'll be something that I can do with it. I mean, that's a very small example of it, but I think larger examples of it come maybe in times of crisis in our life, which really was what Cinderella was facing, was an, an enormous crisis, is that we suddenly find that we had strength or knowledge or capacities that we didn't have. We really didn't have, but then there they are. And I think that's what the birds symbolize. So when these magical helpers in Psyche appear, it comes without our conscious volition. It comes without our agency. It's, our agency is exhausted. It is at the end of its resources. And just suddenly there is something there. But in this story, and I think for all of us, there's necessary groundwork that our conscious selves do. And in this case, it was grief. It's interesting. You mention Cinderella in Crisis. And actually, the crisis is not exactly the core impetus for what's going on. The crisis is just, it's there. It's her whole life. She's being treated as this slave. But the impetus for everything that happens is, well, the prince is having a ball and is going to pick a bride and she wants to go. And when you kind of remove yourself really far back and look at it like that, you would almost think, wow, it's kind of a shallow story. She just wants to go to the ball with everyone else. But it's the fact that everyone is invited, mm -hmm. but her family won't let her go. Mm -hmm. And so it's this last straw kind of thing, or just this is finally something that she really wants to do because she hasn't been able to live a great life while working as a slave for her stepfamily. And finally, she has this impetus to go to the party. But she tries to follow the rules 
for so long. Her stepmother gives her what is perceived to be an impossible task. Surely she can't complete this. Through those magical helpers, she's able to peck all of the lentils out of the ashes. And then, okay, did that, but now go do it again. Of course, she won't be able to do it by the time. And she does it again. And then finally, the stepmother has to just say, look, you're not going. And I actually think that that story really lives on in many of us at many different times of our lives. There are times where we're just sort of stuck in misery, right? We are sleeping in our own ashes, just like Cinderella was sleeping in the ashes. We are slaves to our internal or external circumstance or both. And then a yearning to do something arises in us. And that something may not make a whole lot of sense on the surface, but we cannot get away from that yearning. It just keeps poking at us and poking at us. And we have to do something different. We can't just keep sleeping in the ashes. We have to try something. And I think that's, again, what the story of Cinderella lets us take a look at is, okay, sometimes we want to do something that makes no sense, that doesn't even seem related to improving our circumstances. But Psyche isn't going to let it go. It's going to keep pushing it, pushing it, pushing it until we finally have to stand up to our internal or external evil stepmother and just try. Um, so once Cinderella is told, now, following the rules isn't going to work. You are simply forbidden to go to the party, period, end of story. Don't care how many lentils you pick out of the stones. She goes and stands under her tree the tree that she brought to life with her grief. And she asks the birds to send her the clothes and the shoes to go to the ball. And her wishes are granted. And she goes to the ball and the prince is smitten. The young masculine meets the young feminine in that Jungian archetypal way <laughs> that symbolizes movement towards wholeness in a admittedly very gender binary way. <laughs> But this is how fairy tales symbolize the possibility for a new wholeness. But Cinderella wants to hide where she came from. There's a shame about who she is. She's not ready yet to be really seen by somebody else in. She wants to be seen as this beautiful young woman in a beautiful dress with beautiful shoes. She does not want the other part of herself which is the slave girl who sleeps in ashes, to be seen. And again, I think that that's something that we all experience. We want the beautiful, lovely, polished parts of ourselves to be seen, and we don't want the messy, dirty, perhaps victimized parts of ourselves to be seen. I think you need... Look no further than Instagram to know that that is true. Mm, yeah, right, right. How, how carefully people curate their lives, right? Nobody ever puts their junk drawer 
on Instagram. <laughs> Let alone the really shitty thing that they did. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the story has to repeat a few times. She has to go again. And she has another wish for beautiful clothing. And again, the prince is smitten. And again, she hides where she lives from the prince. She's still not willing to show her whole self. On the third day, and three is always a magical number, Cinderella goes to the tree next to her mother's grave and gets another dress from the bird and does the whole thing for the third time. And for the third time, Cinderella tries to escape the prince. But this time, the prince takes the agency role. And he has laid a trap for her. He's, he's wised up that this beautiful girl that he's so in love with uh, is going to sneak out on him again. So why do you think the repetition here? Because I think that's what we do. In Jungian terms, I would call the beautiful dress and the beautiful slippers part of persona, right? It's the part that we want to put out into the world and really functions in the world. But when we really love somebody, they have to be able to see past our persona. We have to let them. A real love loves more or less all of us, right? I mean, probably not perfectly, because there is no perfect happily ever after in normal waking life, but as close to that as possible. They're going to love the whole person with all of our broken, messy parts we usually are going to put up a pretty good repetitive fight to hide those parts from other people. I think that's why the repetition. Yeah, it's interesting as well. As someone who has gone through some kind of great loss, some kind of grief, the world sort of splits into people who've been through what you've been through and people who haven't. Mm -hmm. And so I think there can be a tendency... I mean, obviously, she wants to hide, in this case, the cinder part, the sleeping in the ashes, the how she's treated at home. But I think maybe it could also be hiding this grief. Is he going to understand? And maybe it is his agency, his willingness to lay this trap for her that shows he doesn't want to be fooled. He does want to see her all of her, including her grief. And that's what allows the story to move forward. Yeah. Interesting, that idea of another person who can witness you, who can, who can see you in that full way is necessary and who shows their willingness to do. And then, of course, he takes up that shoe and resolves to find Cinderella. But... That kind of covers all of the grief elements for the story. So I think we have to leave the rest for next episode, where we're going to be talking about envy. And in particular, I think you had a book that people might be interested in regarding envy and Cinderella. Yeah, it's Cinderella and Her Sisters by Anne Yolanoff. And we'll announce it again at the, when we release the next episode. But it's really a wonderful, wonderful book on, of the effect on envy on both the person who is being envied 
and the person who is doing the envying. Some extracurricular reading for everyone. Exactly. exactly. If you don't have enough from the podcast, there's always more to read. And that wraps things up for this episode. Our intro-outro music is a sample of Spring Movement 1 Allegro from The Four Seasons, composed by Antonio Vivaldi and performed by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players. You can find the full version at freemusicarchive.org, link in the show notes. And if you like what you've been hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast feed of choice, as it really helps other people find the show. This show will always be free and available to all, but if you would like to monetarily support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash Everafter. Also, Dr. Adina Davidson is a certified Jungian analyst who offers telesessions. You can find out more about her practice at adinadavidson.com or her Psychology Today profile. We'll be with you again next month, but until then, we hope your month is filled with exploring the worlds of imagination and storytelling. Mm-hmm.